I mean, I had the um, experience of being a JRF without any teaching commitments as well. And in some ways, it's an incredibly privileged position to be in because a lot of early career positions are quite heavy in the teaching load you get. And in some ways, I started it with exactly that in mind. I also had a completely different project, which was supposed to be a book project, which I've now just turned into one article, basically, because I didn't get around to do the empirical research. And I actually found being a JRF quite an unexpected psychological or emotional challenge because it is all self-motivation, right? There's no structure even less so than in a DPhil where you have some statistics classes and some confirmation or you know some sort of there are some landmarks whereas in a JRF you're completely on your own no one realizes if you don't get out of bed for three weeks you know so on some level it is much more you know intellectually speaking it is the biggest opportunity I ever got but then on other levels I found it quite of a challenge and I've now switched to a position that is half research half teaching and now I miss the time that I don't have anymore for research but I essentially it's sort of a bit of a question of what type one is you know some people really find synergies between what they teach and what they research whereas for other people it's really a trade-off and any time they spend teaching they have to take away from their research and so going for a JRF it's sort of not that I would ever recommend anyone not trying to go for a JRF but given that it is an incredible a lot of work to um, apply for JRFs and the sh chances are not amazing <laughs> compared to other postdocs so one way you know for um, in some ways it is really good for people who decide that they want this time just for their research, that they flourish under these conditions. For them, it is actually an absolute no-brainer and they should definitely try and get a JRF. For anyone else, it is more of a question whether that's the right format and whether you know, they might not want um, a postdoc that get is easier to get and offer some more structure because it also has some more sort of menial obligations of teaching and administration. Um, so much for that, I can say more about that later. Talking about my research, so this is my um, PhD project still because the other project hasn't gotten off the ground in the way I wanted to and I'm also still working on this, um, translating it into a book. I have to apologize first that I don't have any pictures. So if this was a PowerPoint presentation that I'd done for a military or historical conference, you'd have all these exploding things and drones. But this is from a um, presentation I gave to philosophers and I thought they'd frown upon that sort of thing. So I didn't put any pictures in. And you know, I think I should have, but um, so I think this time war is losing out to art in terms of coolness, which is really sad. But so basically, I asked about whether um, international law is effective in armed conflict. And the project is inspired really by a puzzle. And in social sciences, that's always what we try to do. We find a puzzle to explain. And the puzzle here is that basically over the last couple of decades, a certain type of warfare, specifically international armed conflict and the interventions of coalitions of Western countries into third world countries. They have basically exhibited an incredible unprecedented um, development of legalization. Law has really sort of infiltrated every aspect of warfare. Yet at the same time, these wars do not generate any less moral outrage and sort of public disaffection, quite the contrary actually. So the puzzle for me is why is it possible that the legalization of warfare widespread commendation for international law having penetrated that area of international relations does not actually go hand in hand with us also being less morally abhorred by warfare but actually goes hand in hand with if anything an increase of condemnation for the effects of war on civilian populations. That development was particularly obvious if we looked at Afghanistan. I'm sure it was very popular in the media that for um, a number of 
years, basically, US airstrikes in Afghanistan caused immense public outrage and disaffection and posed a real political problem for the coalition as well as for the Afghan government. And the US took steps to increasingly basically tighten its rules of engagement as in terms of what you can actually attack, under what conditions, having lawyers deliberate every aspect of targeting until their rules of engagement were actually stricter than the law, yet that public disaffection never actually abated. So there are many, this, the explanation is quite complicated, but one thing that I thought we have to ask is what does actually mean for war to be, or warfare, to be subject to legal regulation. In some ways, international law, it surprises, it surprises people that there is such a thing as international law, and the thing that surprises them most is that it should have anything to say about war. Because we all know these idioms, all is fair in love and war, and inter arma silent legis, so on the battlefield the law is silent, right? So basically, in some ways, this is incredibly surprising that law should sort of infuse warfare. And therefore, a lot of the time, we equate effectiveness of law in war with recourse to it. So basically just observing all the lawyers and the command centers and the legal language, we think that means law is effective. And this puzzle meant to me that we have to ask the question in a different way. And basically I asked three separate questions. And the first is, can international law, when it is recurred to, actually make a difference? And that sounds like a strange question. The reason we have to ask it is that international law is made by states and it addresses states. That is fundamentally different from the concept of law we have in mind, which is, rests on an asymmetrical relationship, right? So in the domestic context, we have a legislator backed by the monopoly of the use of force in the, of the government, essentially, and that addresses the subjects of law, which are people, individuals, right? And there is a power asymmetry, which is what we consider enforcement. So law is, are norms that are attached to the coercive power of the state. In the international system, that's not at all true, right? The subjects of international law, the addressees of legal regulation are states. The creators, the legislators are also states and there is no enforcement. As a result, there's this lingering suspicion that states simply put into law what they want to do anyway. And that basically that law is an epiphenomenon of what we call strategic interests and that it makes no difference whatsoever when we recur to it. In the case of war, that would mean basically that law simply legitimizes what states want to do in war anyway, that it in no meaningful way constrains them, and that it makes no counterfactual difference whether or not states recur to, war, to law when they decide what to bomb or whether they don't. Right? So I asked that question and I asked, answered it affirmatively. And I'm not going to talk about how I did that because it is basically um, a sociological theory about what the cognitive and motivational processes that change when we recur to law on an individual level. And that is basically not specific at all to laws of war. It is a theory about international law in general. And in some level that is um, the core of my work because it is where I really try to make an innovative contribution because it is a genuinely open question how or why why we can theorize the counterfactual added value of law in the international realm. But since it has almost nothing to do with war specifically, I'm not going to talk about it very much. The second question I then asked is, does international law actually make a difference? And I looked at US air warfare. I can say a bit more about later why specifically US air warfare, but in short, because it is the easiest case for law to make a difference. Because US air warfare over a very short period of time has evolved from being not at all subject to legal regulation to being the most comprehensively legalized war there is for study. So I um, studied this question on two levels. At first, I compared air campaigns from the Vietnam War to the 2003 invasion of Iraq 
the air, only the air campaigns. And basically, you can almost, you can't hold very much constant ever in social sciences. But basically, the independent variable, so what I'm interested in, the law, changes from zero input to a lot of input. And what I try to then come up with is extract how that is related to the choice of targets. And to what extent that actually backs up my theory how law makes a difference. The second level on which I investigated that is what we call process tracing in um, social sciences by interviewing individual decision makers. I did 48 interviews with um, pilots and with judge advocates general, which are the legal, um, the lawyers in the military and commanders, and basically attempted to show how these motivational and cognitive processes are at work in their decision making. And so I answered the question, does it make a difference as well in the affirmative? And then lastly, I asked, is, does that actually lead to a normative improvement of warfare? Because that is what we ultimately need to know when we want to solve this puzzle of the increased outrage that accompanies legalized warfare. Right? And this question I answered negatively. Um, this does not lead to a normative improvement. And it's very important for me to stress that I don't mean to suggest war would be better in any meaningful normative way if there was no law. By not normatively successful, I mean that law could do better in war. I hope this will become a little bit clearer later, but it's actually um, a difficult argument to make why I think that. But basically, um, the argument at a glance is, I say what, that law is what I call behaviorally relevant. It does make a difference, but it is not normatively successful. It does not lead to a normative improvement, or law does not make of war what it can to normatively improve it. So the first two are actually social science projects with a little bit of law in there. And the last one is a project of political theory. It is actually a normative evaluation of, you know, finding a normative standard to hold law to, essentially. And hence the conclusion that law is partially effective in war. So I'm not entirely sure how much I can say about the specifics of the argument, but let me start basically by giving you an idea about the law that we're talking about. Because I had to start, obviously, by saying what is the law that regulates warfare. And what I found is basically, um, which complicated the entire project, is that the law is incredibly indeterminate and that there are ultimately two different logics according to which you can wage war and both of which can, in some way, be legitimized with reference to law. I then find one of these logics rising in US warfare, but then find the other logic to be normatively preferable. That is where I come to the conclusion of no normative success. But let me start with showing you just a little bit of what I mean. So basically law relies on two main principles when regulating the conduct of war. The first is distinction, which means you can never deliberately and directly attack anything that is defined as civilian, either a person or an object. The second principle, which I'm not going to talk about, is proportionality, which is that whatever you harm as a side effect of an attack has to be proportionate. You cannot cause excessive civilian harm or collateral damage, as we sometimes say, in relation to what you're trying to do militarily. An incredibly difficult and flawed concept, but I want to focus on distinction here for a second. Because distinction is really about the fundamental question of how law attempts or envisages to regulate war. And it does so by trying basically to delimit war, to really hedge it in, by basically carving out a space of society, of the state, that is part of the engagement or the competition between two militaries. And it attempts to do justice to its humanitarian imperative by making the rest of it immune. And the question is, of course, how do we draw that line? Where do we draw that line? What do we define as the military versus what do we define as the civilian? 
And this is Article 52 of the first edition protocol to the Geneva Convention, which <coughs> defines that in regards to objects, inanimate objects. And it tells us that an object is something that is by its nature, location, purpose or use, makes an effective contribution to the military action of your enemy and whose engagement, destruction, capture or neutralization, offers a definite military advantage. So there are two criteria, contribution to your enemy's military action and advantage for you when you attack it. Those are what we call logically, they logically presuppose each other, right? They say exactly the same thing. Because if something doesn't make a contribution to your enemy's military activities, then you probably don't get an advantage out of kill, killing or destroying or neutralizing it. So in the first instance, that seems pretty clear, right? That should tell us exactly what we can and what we can't destroy. But it is actually this provision beset by two interpretive controversies, and I'm going to talk about one of them in particular, which is the question of what is the frame of reference for military advantage? So I'm attacking something, the question is, am I getting a military advantage? To determine that, I would have to have a horizon of what I want to achieve in light of which I define advantage. The International Committee of the Red Cross, which is the ICRC above there, has an interpretation of advantage that says an attack is a whole, not a, a finite event, not to be confused with an entire war. So basically they're saying in a roundabout way that when we ask what the frame of reference is, we cannot talk about the entire war. We have to say, well, this is the attack and the advantage has to arise directly from that one attack. The US interpretation, on the other hand, is that military advantage is not restricted to tactical gains, but is linked to the full context of war strategy. I'm always wondering, this is grammatically not quite right. But what it basically means is that they want to define military advantage with a view to what they're ultimately trying to achieve in war. And you could say, well, that is ultimately military victory. So they just have a broader frame of reference. They will look at the entire campaign. And you know, whatever they do has to somehow contribute to entire campaign. But there's even a step beyond that that we observe, which is not just military victory as the frame of reference, but actually the political goal of the war. Everyone will tell you all wars have political goals, right? No one just fi fights for the sake of it. But there's actually a danger here to use the political goal of the war as the frame of reference. And I can give you an example of that. For instance, when uh, Israel intervened in the Gaza Strip in 2008 against Hamas, it's military goal was to end Hamas capability of launching rockets into Israel. Right? So if you use that as the frame of reference for the definition of a military advantage, that will give you a certain range of military objectives that you can target. Right? Now Israel targeted the graduation ceremony of the police academy. In light of that military goal, that really doesn't make any sense. What is the military advantage of killing a bunch of police graduates and destroying their training center? None, really. It doesn't seem to make an effective contribution to Hamas' ability to launch rockets either. Now, if you, however, go one step further and say the frame of reference here is the larger political goal of undermining or loosening Hamas' grip on the Gaza Strip, undermining it politically, which Israel would acknowledge as a political goal, right? If you consider that as the frame of reference, then it does make sense to undermine the political fabric the sort of means of um, administration of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, right? And basically what the problem here is that as soon as you basically step outside a logic of military victory, a defeat or victory, 
um, it becomes contingent what is a military objective, contingent on the specific political goals a belligerent has in a specific war. Right? So there's no longer a definitive line. <coughs> we cannot no longer sort of in the abstract tell what sort of stuff, what sort of infrastructure is a military objective. Because that depends on the political goals a belligerent has. So we don't have a definitive line anymore. We have no line that we can objectify because it depends on the espoused goals of a belligerent. And also what we have what I would say call an invitation for escalation. Because if we imagine a more symmetrical war than the one of um, Israel versus Hamas, at some point one side will realize they'll probably lose. If then permissibility of conduct is a function of your proclaimed goal, it is, you have a high, a strong incentive to expand your goal, consider it more important, make it more complex, so that you have a whole new range of options of what you can attack. Right? So there's basically a feedback effect between your natural tendency as a belligerent to expand goals anyway and consider them incredibly important, what we call mission creep, and the notion that you have, as you run out of military options, a strong incentive to do that anyway. Right? And I basically trace, make an argument in my thesis that the second way of interpreting um, this provision with a broad frame of reference is not correct. Not because it has s dangerous implications, that's not the way legal interpretation works, but because it is systematically at odds with this regime. And that's a bit hard to explain how I mean that, but ultimately the conduct of war, what you can do in war, is separate from whether or not you have a legal reason to be in war, right? War is prohibited um, unless it is in self-defense. But the laws for what you can do in war are the same, whether you are the aggressor or whether you are the defender. By implication, the, your reasons for why you are in war, be they legal, moral or political, cannot actually play a role in determining what you are allowed to do or not to do, right? Which is what we call the separation of use in bello of and use ad bellum, or the separation of resort and conduct. And if you're serious about that, you actually have to draw a line for the frame of reference where the military logic swings over into a political. Because as soon as you allow a belligerent to appeal to their causes, political or moral or whatever, when determining permissibility of conduct, you do not have that separation anymore. So I reject that interpretation of the broader frame of reference, but then find that the rise of law in US air warfare and this is the cases I actually look at. The rise of law in US air warfare from Vietnam to the Operation Iraqi Freedom coincides with the broadening of the frame of reference for defining military advantage. So the law has in some ways the opposite effect of what we expect it to have. And I make quite a complicated argument of how that happens and that is ultimately the indeterminacy of the law that is to blame. And the fact that war is ever more subject to public scrutiny, which is why belligerents like the US have a very strong incentive of trying to achieve their political goals as directly as possible with force. So what I call that is the logic of efficiency. The US wages, in with um, the more it looks at law, the more it actually inspires a decision by law, the more it wages war in accordance with the logic of efficiency a direct short line of thinking between ultimate political goals and every action in war. The alternative, what I argue the law foresees or envisages, is what I call the logic of sufficiency, 
which basically erects a definitive non-negotiable barrier between a sphere that is defined as military and a sphere that is defined as civilian. And that basically says whatever your goals, you have to achieve them via military victory first. And sufficiency, because I argue that this rests on the assumption that it is sufficient to achieve military victory, to then achieve your legitimate political claims. And that is a quite complicated historical argument, um, which I do in light of the negotiation records to the various treaties. I then, in the last part, compare the logic of efficiency and the logic of sufficiency and find um, basically on, and there's like a various number of political theory arguments of how to judge law, specifically in light of what we're trying to do in war, which is make it as humanitarian as possible while not entirely prohibiting it, why the logic of sufficiency is normatively superior to the logic of efficiency. And I argue that law could impose the logic of sufficiency if it were more determinate. And hence I say it is not currently normatively successful. That is not an exhaustive explanation for the puzzle, for why we're not less morally outraged by legalized war. There are very important other factors which I also talk about, like our changing ideas, our sort of our changing aversion to casualties and to human suffering, but it is one aspect of it. 